Hey again, I'm Zen Hess, and you are listening to Currents in Religion, a podcast brought to you by the Department of Religion at Baylor University and by Baylor University Press. For the last time, welcome to summer school. This is the final episode of our short summer series. We'll be back in the fall for another season, but until then, you can listen back to the episodes you've missed from this season. We've had a great time learning with fantastic scholars about interviewing for historical research, interdisciplining theology with psychological science, writing religious scholarship, and learning about environmental ethics in a Pauline perspective. Today's episode is especially fun. In part, it's fun because the topic is interesting, but also it's fun because Dr. Deirdre Fulton is a blast to talk with. I spoke with her about the work she did on the NRSV updated edition. Happy listening. When you read a Bible in English, it's typically the work of many people over many years and with many moving parts. It's not the work of a single translator like Jerome's Vulgate or Martin Luther's German translation. It's closer to the Septuagint 70 translators, but add more people and contrary to the tradition associated with the Septuagint, I suspect these people often have significant disagreements in how to translate. So today, Dr. Deirdre Fulton joins us to share about the process of updating the NRSV and to tell us a little about her role in that process. Deirdre Fulton is Associate Professor of Hebrew Bible Old Testament here at Baylor University. If you find this episode interesting or insightful, make sure you share it for others to hear. And if you like the episode, leave us a review. It makes our podcast easier for others to find. All right, here is the interview. Dr. Deirdre Fulton, thank you for joining us on Currents in Religion. Thanks so much for having me. So introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell us a little bit about your research and your areas of expertise. Ah. So I specialize in the study of the Hebrew Bible, uh, as well as the archaeology of the Southern Levant. Specifically, I think of myself as a scholar of the late Iron Age, exilic and post-exilic periods. Can you give us years? Yeah, I'm interested in really the late 8th century into the 2nd century BCE. Cool. And I'm really most interested in the post-exilic, namely Persian and Hellenistic periods. If I had to be more specific, that's what really interests me, really the 5th century into the 2nd century. Mm -hmm. And I've also worked on a number of archaeological excavations over the years, and uh, my specialty is animal bone archaeology. So wow, that's nice. yeah. So it's the study of non-human bone remains in an archaeological context, and I'm really interested in foodways and eating in the ancient context in the ancient world. And you're just back from a trip, is that right? Yeah, I was in Israel for a month working on the Tel Shimron excavations, which are located in northern Israel in the Jezreel Valley. You find any animal bones? A lot, <laughs> <laughs> lots and lots of them. Love that. And um, Ezra Nehemiah has been a focus of yours for some time, right? Yeah, it started in my doctoral studies. I wrote my dissertation and then a book on the book of Nehemiah, and I've just continued to study it ever since. Love that. Yeah. Okay, and so a few years ago, you were one of the biblical scholars who helped update the new revised standard version translation. Give us a bit of context here because 
as far as I can tell, it's already revised <laughs> and it's already new. Uh, so why did folks think that an updated edition needed to be made? That's a great question. <laughs> and I, I do have an answer. But um, yeah, the, you know, going back into the 20th century, the revised standard version, we already started revising the version mm-hmm. and that came out in 1952. And then in 1989, they came up with, they uh, published the new revised standard version. And so an updated edition, what's called the NRSVUE, mm-hmm. new revised standard version updated edition, um, was taken on to consider effectively if there are any new ancient manuscripts uh, that have come to light or more uh, research that has been done on these ancient manuscripts and whether they should be reflected in our contemporary English translations of the Bible. And the answer is yes, they should. Yeah. <laughs> um, particularly since the 1989 New Revised Standard Edition translation, um, there have been a number of publications on the Dead Sea Scrolls that are now widely circulated and biblical scholars are able to access this material. And so that, just the Dead Sea Scrolls um, research over the last, since the 1989 publication warranted an update of the Bible. So the goal was really in this NRSVUE, this new update, was to ensure the integrity of the translation, an up-to-date uh, translation in English that would be uh, um, accessed and received in a religious community setting, mm-hmm. in a, a community setting like that, or in an educational institution. Great. Yeah. So the standard version was revised in order to bring it up into uh, some kind of correlation with the research on manuscripts that had been found in, in prior centuries. And then it became new in 89 when they tried to bring it more into like colloquial, yes. congregational, maybe yes. English. And now we're looking again more specifically at some of the textual evidence that we have that should be kind of introduced into the translations. Yes, that's exactly it. The NRSV in 89 got rid of the thine, thou, mm. um, those types of examples, and also um, was more gender inclusive in its languages. Mm. So got rid of the mankinds and moved it to humanity if it needed to be done. The NRSVUE, it didn't need to address that much updating of the language. Mm -hmm. It really needed to address textual, ancient textual evidence. Okay. So tell us more about the process. I mean, this has got to be somewhat uh, monumental to take on such a well-respected and widely used translation like the NRSV and to update it. So how does a prominent translation like this one get revised. Yeah, it's and it's always controversial when you revise yeah. any uh, any translation. And so when this is taken on, it's done with a uh, with a lot of thought, a lot mm-hmm. of thought gets put into it. So the National Council of Churches partnered with the Society of Biblical Literature and put together the Society of Biblical Literature, put together an editorial board of seven scholars, four for the Old Testament one for the Apocrypha or Deuterocanon, and two mm-hmm. for the New Testament. Okay. So this board of seven um, members really was the um, editorial board. And then in, and, and for the Old Testament, that was made up of Ron Hendel, Eugene Ulrich, Sidney White Crawford, and Robert Kawashima. And in 2017, then, the editorial board reached out to specific scholars to become what were called book editors. And so people who would be responsible 
for a book or maybe a series of books. I mm-hmm. um, edited two books. And, and in a couple of cases, actually, it was an editorial board who did the translation. So First and Second Kings were multiple editors who worked okay. on that. So the editors are from a wide range of academic institutions and from many different countries. Um, but all of us share an expertise on textual criticism and philology. Okay. So the ancient texts, and we, we really uh, look at those. And the, the task was not to retranslate the books. The goal was to review the NRSV's translation and notes and its philological discussions and notes, mm-hmm. not the footnotes, yeah. the other parts, uh-huh. <laughs> and, and to make any changes to these pieces based on each editor's review of the manuscript traditions. And so then we were given some guidelines for what kinds of changes we were allowed to suggest and we could, mm-hmm. we should suggest. Okay. And so tell us more about your specific role in this process. <laughs> so I served as the book editor for the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And my job was, again, to review the NRSV translation for each book and then address the issues that I saw as needing an update based on new textual evidence or more current translation patterns. Mm-hmm. So I would say that, again, that this update wasn't as dramatic sure. as that NRSV getting rid of the thine thou uh uh, thy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it wasn't as dramatic as it, it, removing the non-inclusive language, sure. which really they, they got some grief for that, of course. But the text, uh, but if, but if the, there, there were pieces that then I was responsible for, particularly those philological issues. Do we know more about certain ancient languages? Do we know more about ways to nuance the translation? Mm-hmm. And the answer is yes. Yeah. And in many cases, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, like I mentioned earlier, these the wide publication of all of the scrolls that have been uncovered, or most of them, uh, have are are easy to access for scholars now, and so they needed to be taken into consideration into the translations. In Ezra and Nehemiah, there are very few Dead Sea Scroll fragments. Okay. <laughs> Actually, there's only one really that sure. that we know of that that's um, been provenanced, and so I didn't have to do much for that. But I did need to consider some of these ancient loan words. There are a few Persian loan words. Okay, there's a number of Aramaic uh, terms in Ezra and Nehemiah, and so I was working to um, make sense of those and to um, add any any information I could. So I made a number of suggestions. Um, and uh, they would go then to the editorial board. So my job was to make suggestions both for how to translate the text and then for uh, textual notes connected to translation choices. Okay. And then an ed- the editorial board of seven would go through every single one of these suggestions and either accept or decline the suggestions. Interesting. You're listening to Currents in Religion, and we're speaking with Deirdre Fulton about the process of updating the NRSV Bible translation. If you're enjoying this conversation, I want you to hear about a forthcoming book from Baylor University Press that you might also enjoy. Here's Kay Gerald to share more. We are back with Kay Gerald, the Assistant Director and Managing Editor at Baylor University Press. Kay, what are we talking about today? Hey, thanks, and uh, glad to be on. Yeah, I want to talk about one of our uh, upcoming Fall 23 books. Uh, it's by uh, Old Testament scholar Catherine Dell. It's called The Lord by Wisdom Founded the Earth. Uh, so I'll, I'll just start by saying it's a true honor to have Catherine Dell on our list. She is a stellar uh, Hebrew Bible scholar, 
Uh, she specializes in wisdom literature. So this book is essentially a summation of her trailblazing research into that particular genre, and also the theology of what you know we call the Old Testament mm-hmm. uh, more broadly. So Dell approaches two major themes of Israel scriptures, creation and covenant, uh, through the lens of wisdom. So wisdom as this intriguing concept that emerges fairly late in the trajectory of Israel's uh, theological evolution. So there's this old debate in biblical scholarship that you have two camps of thought in the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they emphasize either the universality of God's relationship with humanity, so that's the concept of creation, or you have the specificity of God's relationship with Israel, and that's the concept of, of, of covenant. Mm-hmm. So Dell deep dives into uh, exegesis of wisdom literature, as well as various uh, creation accounts in Genesis, Psalms, and Job. Uh, she also uh, goes into some prophetic literature. So she demonstrates that the figure and idea of wisdom, personified wisdom, God's special agent and emissary, actually holds the two motifs together. Uh, and so that lends this narrative cohesion to mm-hmm. the scriptural text of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and what she ultimately does is opens up this grand vista of the Hebrew Bible's vision for God's purposes that encompass all of creation and special relational covenants. So this idea that God's particular covenant with Israel was always intended to open up unto the redemption of all creation, right? Um, so yeah, this it, it's a brilliant work of both biblical and theological scholarship uh, and should prove a landmark for years to come. I think this could be her definitive work, honestly. Wow, very cool. The Lord by Wisdom founded the earth out this fall with Baylor University Press. Thanks, Kate. Yep, thank you, Zen. All right, now back to our conversation with Deirdre Fulton. Okay, tell us, (laughs) tell us which change that they rejected that you were most bummed out about. Oh, we're going to start with rejected. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'll just say that I submitted something like 10 pages just for Ezra. Oh my 10 pages, single space of suggestions. And I just looked back to see, and I think they accepted three pages worth of suggestions. All right. So, so you had lots of, lots the, of things that they they weren't uh, yes. they weren't going to accept. Okay. <laughs> it was. And it was kind of funny. I'll just tell you this little anecdote yeah. and then get to some rejected examples. But then when I, I did Ezra first, and then a year later worked on the translation notes and text of Nehemiah, and I would make impassioned pleas <laughs> if I thought that something needed to be done <laughs> that hadn't been taken into consideration. And I got them to move on a couple. Okay. And then they changed back. But anyway, um, so, and I really, yeah, I did care because I, uh-huh. I had put a lot of thought yeah, into every of one of these. So ones that were rejected. Okay. <laughs> so this- <A> novel. <laughs> this is, yes, my novel, but I'll just go, I have, I have a few examples. So one example is in Ezra uh, chapter 2, verse 63. So you have in the verse, um, it, 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 it's a big, long list in Ezra 2. And then it discusses in that part of the passage uh, certain priests who could not find their genealogical records. And then in verse 63, it says, the governor told them that they could not partake in the most holy food until they had consulted someone who had the urim and the tumim. It mm-hmm. has this interesting little piece to it. So that particular term for governor is actually a Persian loan word, an old Persian loan word that means excellency, probably. Mm -hmm. And so 
It's not the same term for governor you see in other places in Ezra Nehemiah, which is pecha, which is a Hebrew term. Mm -hmm. So I wanted the English reader to know that that term is not the same as other times you see governor, that it really means your excellency. And that one was rejected (laughs) because they thought it just needlessly complicated it. I I think it adds a piece, it, it does complicate the text because they're asking a different type of a governor yeah. for the advice. But that one was rejected. That type of a note they thought could be put in a footnote rather sure. than in the textual notes. So, okay. So that's one example. Um, another example is um, the end of the book of Ezra, chapter 10, verse 44 the NRSV reads, and the NRSV UE still reads, <laughs> all these had married foreign women, and, foreign women, and they sent them away with their children. So in the Hebrew, it's actually very unclear, the end. This whole verse is fairly unclear. Okay. And the Greek and the Syriac text state, and there were among them women who had born children, and that's it. Okay. So it doesn't say much about sending them away. Uh-huh. It's very unclear what happens. So I did not think that the text should be amended. We actually amend it to First Ezra 9.36, which is a text in the uh, Apocrypha. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it oftentimes has gotten amended that way as, okay. oh, this must have once reflected this. But a number of modern biblical scholars argue against that emendation. And so I thought the emendation should be placed in a note but not in the body of the text because that's right. not what the earliest Hebrew manuscripts in Greek manuscripts reflect. Right. I lost that one. Okay. That's okay. But that's, that is such an interesting question about, I mean, the significance of text criticism yes. and its practices yes. and where we fall um, on, on how we adjudicate the different ways people do approach text criticism because you're, you're mentioning here that you've got other manuscripts that are reliable mm-hmm. um, that, that give a, significantly different sense if they're not saying and they were sent away. Um, yeah, so that, that does raise interesting questions about the decisions that have to get made. Right. And that and they were sent away is is a, a piece that has been discussed in several theological treatises. Yeah. And so I think there's a lot of weight placed on that type mm-hmm. of a verse. And there's a reason, again, that the editorial board, I, I know the reasons why the editorial board went with keeping it, because when in doubt, just they we generally stick to the reading of uh, of kind of tradition, yeah. and that's what tradition has placed in that text. Mm-hmm. But another one, the final one I'll okay. give you as an yeah, example. Yeah. Good. And I, again, I always know why, because they would give you the reason why it was declined, sure. um, which was very helpful. I found yeah. that to be a really neat um, uh, process. Yeah, that's great. So they also rejected that <laughs> Ezra and Nehemiah have a number of lists, and they rejected that I wanted the list to be more cumbersome. I wanted the <laughs> list to reflect what the Hebrew was actually said, so saying. So okay. every time it said the descendants of this person, I wanted the phrase the descendants of placed in. Now, that would have been adding something like 70 the descendants of into the text, okay. which, as you can imagine, would take up more space. We're mm-hmm. dealing with more pages then. So um, I... I, or, or the phrase, the people of, that's been sure. taken out. So in the English translation, it doesn't always reflect the exact wording of the Hebrew. Mm-hmm. And so my interest in lists and my interest in wanting people to know that there's a flow that's different than maybe the way the English looks, yeah. uh, I just wanted that to be reflected sure. in the text. But again, okay. I lost that case. Lost that one. <laughs> what about ones that you uh, 
had accepted? What are some yeah. of the most significant ones that you think um, that you're that you're just delighted were accepted? Yes. I, well, I had again, I had a number and one I had to work really hard to get through. So maybe that's why I, I felt really good about it. Um, this term appears, it's another loan word. So this okay. is an Aramaic loan word. It's not Hebrew, which is what most of Ezra and Nehemiah are written in, although there's a bit of Ezra written in um, um, Aramaic. Okay. But there are loan words of, as I've already mentioned, uh, Aramaic and then also Old Persian through it. So an Aramaic loan word that you see in a few places is this term bira, which in the NRSV had some uneven translation. So in um, Nehemiah 1, it was translated as capital. Mm -hmm. So when you're reading the NRSV, it, the book of Nehemiah it basically says something like, in the first year, uh, or what does it say? Sorry. Um, something along the lines of, when I was in Susa, the capital city, and it's from the perspective, first-person perspective of Nehemiah. But I didn't think that that really reflected the research that we know about how the term birah gets used for Aramaic. It really means citadel or a walled fortress. It's the Acropolis. Okay, It's the it. top of a city, mm -hmm. it, 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 as you can imagine that. So I noted that um, in Ezra, that really translating capital isn't helpful. You need to imagine that he is in the most secure place in the city of right. Susa. Right. And that this is this would be helpful. So I wanted them to translate it as citadel. And in, and I had suggested in Ezra in one place to change it to, to citadel, and it had been rejected. So when we got to Nehemiah, I made a one-page plea about why mm -hmm. indeed this could be used in all examples. But I would accept the change, of course, if they if they deemed it uh, unnecessary. Yeah. But they did decide to translate it to Citadel of Susa. Okay. And I, so I felt really good about nice. that. It just gives a more precise picture yeah. of where exactly it's envisioned Nehemiah is. Mm -hmm. It's in the top of the city. Yeah. In the, uh, in the walled area of the city. Right. Really important location. Yeah. Yeah. Like a, a defined location within the city. Yeah. And then... A lot of my other changes were things that were just tightening up language. So in Ezra 1, 2, it said in the NRSV, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia so that he sent a herald throughout all of his kingdom and also in a written edict declared, and then it's a declaration statement, and I didn't think that the phrase sent a herald actually reflected the Hebrew. It really is issued a proclamation. Okay. Right. So now it probably comes by a herald. Right. But that's an interpretation of what the Hebrew is actually saying. Yeah. So that one did get changed. And it to, shifts the emphasis from the proclamation itself to who delivers it. Yeah. yeah. So issuing it, it gives the notion of a spoken piece there and then and it's in written form. Right. So that, I think, has more power about how Cyrus functions in the role of giving this message, both mm -hmm. issuing it and then it's in written form right. to be passed. So uh, that did get amended. And then there were a number of little textual emendations where I think something was supposed to be a proper noun mm -hmm. and wasn't capitalized in the English. Sure. So in Nehemiah 3.15, there's a reference to something called the king's garden oh, and okay. it's pretty clear based on several commentators and 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 a number of sources and that's that is an important piece i should add 
my suggestions were always based on general consensus of modern scholars. Ah. So I couldn't go rogue on anything. I was using multiple commentaries, also looking at other translations and seeing what decisions the other other earlier translators had made just to, to come to an educated conclusion not something that was just my personal opinion. Sure. So uh, that King's Garden, I think that's a specific place. It's like in Waco, if you say Magnolia. (laughs) Sure, it's a name of a tree, but we think of a specific location. So King's Garden, when you're talking about Jerusalem, would have referred to a specific location of the King's Garden. Interesting. So that that was something that was accepted, and I felt really good about that. Yeah, Yeah. those all seem really helpful. I, I am curious just to know, when you think about the ones that were accepted and you know that they're now in a translation that's being used, what, is it, what does it feel like to be one of the people who has influenced the words that will be read both by scholars and by folks in the church? It's a humbling experience. I mean, it was a bit, the very first time I saw a display of the NRS VUE, I was both excited yeah. and a little scared to open sure. it up <laughs> and think, wow, yeah. You know, what's this going to look like? And now when I open up, you know, Bible Gateway or whatever mm-hmm. on my app on my phone and go to the NRSVUE, it's interesting. I still mull over some of the choices that didn't get accepted. Sure, I'm not course. dwelling on them. I just think, yeah. like, I wonder, you know, what this would look like. But the ones that are accepted, I feel really good about them and feel that they, I, I feel they're all really good choices. And there was a lot of just care and consideration at yeah. all levels. Uh, into those choices that were made. Yeah. So we've, we've kind of danced around the, the by way of asking about rejections and, <laughs> and things that have been accepted, um, that, that you did all of this work and then you put it before an editorial board. Um, they have criteria, presumably, that they're using to make decisions about what they accept and what they don't. And you mentioned some of those where, where there's some discrepancy in the textual tradition. You might stick with an emendation that is traditional, but do are you do you, did they share with you the broad criteria that yes. they're using and, and what are they? So they had uh, four guidelines for us basically. Okay. The first guideline where, was that we were supposed to propose changes when a textual or grammatical issue impacts the translation and needs to be updated. Yeah. So that's that's a pretty clear example of when you'd want to do that. We were supposed to propose. Uh, changes based on a general consensus of scholars. Okay. So again, it was something that not just one person had observed, but multiple scholars have observed. So not one opinion, multiple opinions. Mm-hmm. We were to update text-critical notes that were found in the margins of the NRSV if new textual evidence or new insight into the textual ed- evidence had come into uh, come into the discussion. And also suggests where translations could be improved. Mm-hmm. So based on removing words that are rarely heard in English. Okay. One thing that um, the NRSV wants is for readers for readers to understand the English that's yeah. presented. So we were to update these if necessary. Um, and yeah, so those were the basic mm-hmm. criteria. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, as you've been reading in the updated edition, have you seen other changes that you think really helped make this updated edition a a better translation beyond Ezra Nehemiah, of course? 
Yeah, I think there are, are many examples, um, particularly in some of the wisdom literature texts. Okay. I think that's tightened up. Uh, and there's so much of that in the Dead Sea Scrolls that there's probably just a bit more uh, evidence to work with. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so in, in a, a text like Job has a lot of hapax legomena, places okay. that have only one appearance of the word or mm-hmm. very rare, rarely used vocabulary. And so updating some of the uh textual notes are helpful in those examples. Um, So I found those to be really well done. I think what the editorial board also did really, really well is that they had to take all of the emendations into consideration. So one of the reasons I might have had something rejected is because they knew that this appeared in another text Mm -hmm. and it better reflected the meaning in multiple texts rather than just go with what I was deciding in my one text. So they had to think about that, but they also have to think about how texts do change over how language changes over time, yeah. and consider the compositional dates of a text and how how that might factor into it. So they had just a lot of different pieces to consider, and so I I really admire mm. that editorial board for the work that they did and what they had all the moving pieces they yeah. had to consider, yeah. and that I didn't have to see. I, I had to just think about two mm-hmm. books, which felt like a lot, but uh, yeah. So I think they've made a more uniformity across, say, the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, sure. in, in a meaningful way. And they really did a wonderful update to the Apocrypha. Okay. That a number of pieces of, of uh, textual, text-critical pieces have been considered for those. So mm. those look really nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the changes in the New Testament aren't as dramatic. Sure. Um, the manuscript traditions haven't changed all that much in the last 30 years. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, so I think, but I think actually some could argue that the Apocrypha might see the most changes out of everything. Interesting. Something to pay attention to. Yeah. So a a more kind of personal, reflective question Mm -hmm. here. Did the way that you think about what makes a good translation change as you worked through this process? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I, I teach Hebrew and oftentimes what I want introductory Hebrew students to do is give me the cumbersome translation. Sure. But thinking about how a, an English reader doesn't really, that's not helpful. Yeah. Getting caught on the syntactical structure that's foreign to an English speaker just because it reflects the Hebrew is something that I don't have the luxury to be putting into the text. Yeah. That doesn't help. And so I think one thing I had to consider is the readership, mm-hmm. the readership, the readership. What, how, how is a person going to think about every word? And when, I, when I'm making changes, have I introduced something more difficult mm-hmm. for the reader? And how is that helpful? Yeah. If it's going to be more difficult, how is that helpful? So I, I, and just the craft of translation is tough. It's yeah. tough to do it well. And so I really admire all the those who came before me in translating the text of Ezra Nehemiah and thinking about those. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I think that all of those pieces, I just hadn't thought quite um, about how to put it all together and then consider the entire book yeah. or books. Yeah. So I... Uh, <laughs> That's great. Yeah. The, the translation process, as you mentioned, is just not easy um, and, and maybe in certain contexts, I mean, in a classroom where you're learning Hebrew, the identifying the syntactical structure and, and 
producing a cumbersome wooden kind of translation that that in a sense imitates the Hebrew on the on the in the, on the side of the English translation is really helpful for students. But yeah, what a what a difficult and tricky task uh, to keep ever before your mind readers who will be using the NRSV UE um, for all sorts of different reasons and with all sorts of different um, capacities as readers. And, and I would say another thing that I uh, had to take into consideration is that I had to go back to multiple manuscripts. So I keep talking about the Hebrew, but I was looking at multiple Greek manuscripts, yeah. Aramaic and Syriac manuscripts. Right. And I just saw the craft of these ancient writers and translators mm -hmm. and the beauty of the way a language works in different languages. And so I think that also was something that was wonderful to yeah. get to mull over and consider. Mm -hmm. I mean, I felt like it was a luxury to just get to consider all of these different texts and the way that, you know, I mentioned Ezra 263 is, was written in multiple different yeah. languages and then how to think about that in my own language. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Deirdre Fulton, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks once again to Dr. Deirdre Fulton and to Kay Gerald for joining us on this episode of Currents and Religion. And that does it for this episode and for this season. We'll be back with new episodes in the fall. Make sure you subscribe now so you don't miss those episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or X or whatever it might be called in the fall to stay in the loop. I hope you enjoy the rest of your summer. And until the fall, take care.